0: My name is Sam Clements and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picturehouse podcast proudly supported by Kia. and welcome to the new year. Here we are folks, 2024, first show of the new year as well. Welcome returning listeners, hope you had a lovely holiday season, happy new year. If you're new, happy new year to you too and welcome to the Picturehouse podcast. We basically talk about movies. If I was to add a second line to that description, we primarily talk about the films coming to your local picture house cinema every month. We pick four films. We invite two new guest critics to join us. We sometimes have a special guest, which we do on this show. And uh, and yeah, it's a bit of a film chat, you know, and it's great if you do live near a picture house cinema, I'd love to welcome you through our doors to see a film. If you're listening further afield and there isn't a cinema near you, I think this acts as a pretty good film magazine and. a review show you can see what's on uh, you know and if you come to this a little bit later maybe the films that were in the cinema are now available at home or on DVD that sort of thing so yes film chat that's what we're all about and 2024 is shaping up to be a fantastic year at the time of recording we're in that sort of sweet spot where All of the awards films are coming out, all of the things that may eventually win BAFTAs and Golden Globes and Oscars, of course, the big one. So uh, so yeah, there's a lot of very, I mean, films that I've personally enjoyed, but films that are getting a lot of buzz from critics. You may have seen them recently on end of year lists that sort of thing and uh and yeah i think january is really the purple patch of uh of of, of great movies uh, right now there's so much stuff which is uh, is sort of vying uh you know for a, for a gold medal a little statuette or, or or similar so without further ado let me introduce our two new co-hosts our first co-hosts of the year we have returning Uh, guest critic, Helen O'Hara. You may see or hear her work uh, with Empire, both in the magazine and on the Empire podcast. Helen is a returning critic to Love the Cinema. Welcome back, Helen. Uh, She's been on a few shows before. She also writes for the Picturehouse magazine, Picturehouse Recommends, uh, which you can pick up for free at your local cinema. Um, And I mean, Helen, her output is incredible. Her work is wonderful. I love reading and and listening uh, to what she's done. She wrote a fantastic book, a couple. Of years ago, now called "Women Versus Hollywood: uh, The Rise and Fall of Women in Film." Uh, if you haven't read that, would highly recommend. And uh, and yeah, just and also actually, uh, you know, we're recording this in January, but Helen every year does this amazing podcast series called "Bar Humbug," uh, which is all about Christmas films. And Okay, technically Christmas has passed, but it's still a little bit chilly. Some of those Christmas films are are very winter-friendly, and Bar humbug is a really nice companion uh, to guide you through new and classic releases uh, of the Christmas oeuvre. Uh, I'm also delighted to welcome, for the very first time on The Love of Cinema, Kat Brown, a uh, friend of, of Picture House and a fantastic writer. Uh, you'll hear more about that a little bit later on. But Helen and Kat have just launched the most incredible podcast. Um, it's called Pop Culture, and it is a podcast about soft drinks. That is launching this month. Uh, there's a link to that podcast in the show notes. would highly recommend checking that out. So, you know, and I feel like soda pop and, and soft drinks, they're very uh, cinema Jason, you know, often you get those large cups or you'll take a fizzy drink in uh, to the cinema to enjoy. So, uh, yeah, can't wait to see how pop culture pans out. And uh, delighted to hear, more importantly, delighted to hear what Helen and Kat make of the four films that we'll cover on this month's podcast. One final bit of housekeeping from me. What we're going to do is we'll listen to Helen and Kat's film reviews. And at the very end of of the review chat, we do have a very special guest, uh, director James Hawes, director of One Life, which is in cinemas right now, playing at... Quite a lot of picture house cinemas do check listings for details. It's the new film uh, starring Anthony Hopkins and uh, it's, it's based on the true life story of Nicholas Winton. Uh, but there's more of that uh, in the in the end of the podcast and uh, we are joined by a previous a podcast host, Sean Wilson, a wonderful podcaster and film journalist who's talking to James. There, so stand by for James and Sean at the end of the episode, but right now, let's listen to Helen and Cat discuss Alexander Payne's new film, The Holdovers. You just earned yourself a detention, sir. Even
1: you is already
0: one big detention. Son of a... Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can.
2: Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers.
1: Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that?
3: You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on
2: us. Okay, Helen, uh, this will come as no shock to you to to learn that I've basically been in a cultural desert for, I would say, (laughs) the last two years. I've been working on two books at the same time, which has been a horrendous mistake, both for my sanity and my ability to see films at all, let alone in the cinema. Uh, So I have not seen The Holdovers yet, which I'm livid about, because that trailer alone made every cockle in my body so warm. And it gave me lovely flashbacks to Sideways and I'm not drinking any of that effing Merlot. So tell me, is The Holdovers going to make me happy this January? Because God knows we all need it.
1: Honestly, I think it is. Look, the thing is, like, it shouldn't be out in January. Let me just lead with that. This should not be coming out on January 19th. That is crazy because this is a Christmas film. And more than that, it's one of the greatest Christmas films I've seen in decades. And you know me, I'm into my Christmas films. I have that Bah Humbug Christmas Movies podcast. So. I was super excited about this on paper, but it still managed to kind of surprise me. So the idea is obviously, you know, uh, Alexander Payne directing his sideways star, Paul Giamatti, back working with him. This time Giamatti plays a professor at a sort of elite fancy boys boarding school in, I think, 1969, New England. And he is very unpopular, both with the kids and his fellow teachers. So he gets lumbered with staying there over the Christmas break with all the kids who can't go home for whatever reason. Um, And basically his only support is the school cook, played by Divine Joy Randolph. And, And he ends up, you know, essentially looking after only one boy who's left behind for reasons that I kind of feel like are a spoiler I'm not going to go into. And so the three of them are these sort of lost souls in this very harsh, very cold environment, you know, like the school is pr- pretty much completely closed down and they've all been told to, you know, go and sleep in one area of the, of the medical wing, I think. And it's just about them finding something in each other, you know, that maybe will help them get along. Not in a schmaltzy, overdone, overbearing way, just in a kind of human connections story. I, I just think it's great. It's also very funny. Of course, it's like a, it's an Alexander Payne film. It's the guy who made Sideways. It is going to be funny, but it's so much better than it has to be. Do you know what I mean? You know, you've watched you Christmas
2: movies with me. I hugely appreciate that. And, and to be honest, any film uh, at the moment when it is, I think it's so much better than it has to be is a lovely Shorthand for what we all know from that. I'm, I'm sort of, I've been envisaging in my head sort of a less troubled Dead Poet Society.
1: Is that vibe there? It's not a million miles off, but where he was a really inspirational teacher in Dead Poet Society, like Robin Williams was a lovely teacher, you just wanted to run up and hug and and sit at his feet and learn his ways. Uh, you know, Paul in this movie, and he does play a character called Paul, is. Not that. He is the opposite of that. He is the most (laughs) alienating teacher you could possibly imagine. And Angus, the the, the main kid who's left behind, played by Dominic Sessa, who's pretty much a newcomer and does a really good job here, Absolutely hates him, has no time for him whatsoever. So they have a lot further to go, these guys, you know, to, to kind of make meet in the middle in any way. And then you have this third sort of leg to the triangle, if you like. Um, Mary Divine Jo Randolph's character who is mourning her son who just died in Vietnam, this kid who was just full of promise, who she had built her whole life around. And she's just left surrounded by all these privileged white boys Mm. and, you know, trying to kind of deal with this incalculable loss. And she's the only one of the three who has reason to be heartbroken, and reason to be acting out, and yet is probably the most, you know, centered, centered of any of them. It's just, it's a gorgeous set of characters, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous kind of combination of different types of loneliness, different types of problems, and, and different things that they can offer each other and maybe get through all this. That's uh,
2: it's, that's such an interesting pattern, actually, for this set of films. I mean, I, I can't speak to poor things, but certainly that means that at least three of the films that we're speaking about today really do have loneliness as a, a fairly central concept. I think one of the things that is so interesting about anything set at Christmas is that most films and most songs, to be honest, ignore that real gut punch of sickly, grief, loneliness, all those, all those sort of difficult aspects that can really come to play at, this, at that time of year. And it's so nice that that is actually sort of centred into the holdovers. Yeah. Um, because otherwise it, it can feel a little bit like even, even Kevin McAllister had a ball when he
1: was left at home. He only sort of <laughs> felt a, a modicum of loneliness right towards the end. Exactly. And this is a lovely, it's a a Christmas film, it's a Twixmas film. It's still going to give you warm feelings in January, but I mean, come on, it should have been out a month ago. I'm just saying. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before. So that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia,
0: movement that inspires. Well, I mean, I couldn't have imagined picking two better people to discuss The Holdovers, especially uh, as the, uh, the Holdovers is set in sort of the betwixt of Christmas and New Year's and Helen's uh, podcast credentials there. And Kat is just a big Christmas fan. I Just to add my two-penneth worth, I caught The Holdovers uh, just before we uh, we broke up for Christmas at Special Preview. And oh, wow, I love this film. I'm not always an Alexander Payne kind of guy. You know, I think the highs are high, and, and I think sometimes he kind of misses the mark. But I adored The Holdovers. I think it might be... I'm going to say this close to the microphone. I think it might be his best film. I'm just going to put that out there. I love Election. I love Sideways. I love Nebraska. But I think this might be his best. Anyway... You can decide when the uh, that film uh, comes to your local picture house this January. Uh, do check local listings, but it'll be quite a lot of picture houses. Um, cannot recommend it enough. Paul Giamatti is wonderful in the film. Next up, we've got Priscilla, the new film from Sophia Coppola, uh, writer and director of things like Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, Virgin Suicides. Um, her last film, I believe, came out during lockdown and, and maybe got a little bit lost in the, in the fray, On the Rocks, although I do highly recommend seeking that one out if you can. Uh, this is a big new cinema film um, about the, the life of Priscilla Presley. And let's hear what Kat and Helen thought of Priscilla. Hi. What's your name? Priscilla Boyer. You like Elvis Presley? Of course. Who doesn't? One of the kids listening to these days. Bobby, Darren, Fabian, and you. <laughs> Just what is the intent here, Mr. Presley?
4: You got women throwing themselves at you. Why my daughter? Well, sir, I happen to be very fond of your daughter.
1: But you mentioned loneliness there, and you're right. I think it is a theme for all of these films. And it's particularly true for one that I know that you've seen as well, which is which is Priscilla, which is absolutely, and perhaps surprisingly, a film about loneliness. I wasn't expecting that at all. No. Uh, the very limited amount
2: that I knew about Priscilla Presley, which is Pr- Presley, we should say. The, the family name has always been pronounced Presley, as I discovered whilst Googling everything that I possibly could after seeing this film, because my God, she opened me wanting to find out more about her and her life. I I just, I knew her from like the Naked Gun films and Mm -hmm. maybe a bit of Dallas and obviously having been married to Elvis and didn't know much about her at the time. And so I had my appalling preconceptions that she was, you know, it was going to be a just film. She was just the wife. She was just the person that isn't as important as the talent. And oh my God, this blew my stupid preconception socks off because I mean, Apart from the fact that this clearly should have been a TV series, this is just the most incredible biopic that I've seen in a very long time. Um, Sophia Coppola has taken Priscilla Presley's own memoir, Elvis and Me, which was published around the mid 80s, and brought, first of all, the story of this very self composed 14 year old girl uh self-composed, obviously mistaken throughout by a lot of people as mature beyond beyond her years, which is always one of those creepy things mm, that very creepy. adults say to groom small children. She is very bored on a military base in Germany with her her mum, and I discovered through reading the memoir <laughs> later, um actually her stepdad and actually her stepdad and not her, her biological dad who had died and it was just never mentioned again. But she is uh approached by one of the military staff in charge of the music he and his wife uh look after the music and said that Elvis is nearby and really lonely for home and would love to meet you know a nice young girl who is 14 uh to have a lovely chat about America and her parents reluctantly give her permission to go as long as she's properly chaperoned although good lord the concept of chaperoning throughout this film really does make you question that and um, she goes, and this lovely, sleepy-eyed boy who is twenty-four—not not, a, not mm. a boy, good lord—and also an extremely successful pop star at that point, is charmed by this, you know, lovely but gawky child, and um, and so they can can they see each other in, in Germany. The family sort of go along with it and get a bit swept up in it all, and and it's just that weird. Interesting line between the propriety of the fifties but coming straight off the the really grisly lines being redrawn aspect of the forties and then before we're going into the sort of faux permissiveness of the sixties and seventies these parents don't know what's up, but Priscilla ends up moving to live with Elvis through yeah. machinations that I still don't completely understand, but you know it's a testament to living with your grandma and Mm. slightly creepy father and therefore being able to go, she'll be totally safe all the time. And then just begins the most devastating depiction of a human vase, basically. I always thought it was odd that there was so much focus on Priscilla because they were in inverted bracket, only married for like a couple of years. I had no idea, no idea that they were together for so long before that, Mm. like starting off at 14 and then 21. What were your thoughts, Helen?
1: Yeah, I thought the—I mean, also the performances—Kaylee Spaney as Priscilla and and Jacob Elordi as as Elvis. You know, you you got a sense partly just because they're they're. Wildly different in size. He's an enormously tall man. She's a very petite woman, and it really helped get across that age gap of about what ten years, but a very important ten years. Very important ten years got across the age gap. It got across the power differential between them. He's kind of looming over her all the time, and this sense of his control over her and his, you know, his the limitations he places on her. I thought was really really came through, you know, gradually, it wasn't kind of force fed to you. It wasn't like you weren't overwhelmed by it, but gradually and gradually you could feel the walls closing in on this kid, even as she's growing up and and expanding herself and expanding as a person and trying to kind of break free. Yeah, really fascinating portrait of a marriage, I thought. I think it's a, a real return to form for Coppola.
2: I think that's also why I would have loved to see it as a TV series because mm. it is an incredible depiction of a marriage but I was also fascinated that she and Elvis not quite reconciled but they they grew to view each other as equals and they uh, in her memoir Presley says that they they both took responsibility for aspects of it that were that were on them but uh, there's so many lines in this that are just screamingly horrific because obviously there's been so much conversation around. Oh, Elvis didn't didn't groom her; they were just friends and everything. But it's it's things like him telling her that, oh, Priscilla, you're too small to wear prints and controlling her wardrobe, and mm. um, he also controlled her birth control, which is why she got pregnant so quickly. Also, the best line of all, probably when he was going through, his absolutely unbearable. LSD dude phase. Priscilla, this is never going to work if you don't share my interests in philosophy. Uh, but it's also this, I found this really like distressing depiction of everybody just going along. Um, I've been rereading Sarah J. Mars's A Court of Thorn and Roses series, *Acatar* recently, and that depicts all these tropes about men knowing what women want. But in this film, nobody knows what Priscilla wants because mm. she doesn't know what she wants either.
1: Well, yeah, you know, you're quite right. It's a woman trying to grow up and basically a man getting in her way <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But, but yeah, really fascinating, fascinating stuff. And it made me want to read the memoir as well. So I guess well done, Priscilla.
0: Well, thank you, Kat and Helen. I haven't seen Priscilla yet, uh, but I loved hearing you talk about it. I am a like card carrying uh, Sophia Coppola fan I just sort of hesitated there because I was looking around I just got a book uh, that Sophia Coppola has has released uh, the Sophia Coppola archive which uh, I can recommend if you're a fan of her work. it's got lots of personal photos and and sort of memories and, and trinkets uh, from her her sort of film career so far in there but uh, but that sort of goes up to Priscilla so Priscilla is the next the next wave uh, there so Priscilla also out in cinemas right now some picture house cinemas are showing the film on 35mm which is always a treat uh, but the film looks gorgeous no matter where you watch it i've been watching the trailer and looking at stills um, you know for a few months now as the film has been doing the festival circuit i hear very good things uh, about the two leads in the film too Okay, let's go on to film number three. We have got Yorgos Lanthimos' new film, Poor Things. You'll remember director uh, Yorgos Lanthimos from previous films like The Favourite and The Lobster and... Dogtooth, way back when. Uh, uh, such a wonderful body of work. And this new film is a real treat. Probably his biggest canvas to date. And this magnificent uh, performance uh, from not just Emma Stone, but Emma Stone is, is a huge part of this film. It's also got Willem Defoe and Mark Ruffalo and, and a whole bunch of other uh, wonderful actors in. But you didn't come here to hear what I thought of the film. I would like to know what Helen and Kat made of poor things.
4: I am Bella
1: Baxter. I'm a flawed, experimenting person. I seek outings and adventures. Bella's so much to discover.
0: You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen.
1: I am finding being alive fascinating. Bella. Why I keep it in my mouth if it is revolting?
2: So, Helen, I've been locked in a booth recording my audiobook this week, which means that I have not seen Poor Things, which I'm furious about, because this really is one of my most anticipated films of 2024. Maybe the rest of the decade, who knows? Just love
1: to see Emma Stone doing what she does best. And what is she doing best in this film? (laughs) She's kind of doing everything in this film, actually. So uh, the idea of this film is that she's almost a Frankenstein's monster, Kind of. Her creator is almost also Frankenstein's monster, I feel like. So it's Willem Dafoe in a large amount of prosthetics who plays this revolutionary surgeon who has this, this full-grown woman in the body of Emma Stone who clearly has the mind of a child living in his house. And this is Bella Baxter. This is her character. And she is developing rapidly but still kind of going through all the stages of childhood in a fully grown adult's body. So there's issues of like controlling her and you know uh, uh, what you do when she has a tantrum, what you do when she has a breakdown, um, how is she hidden from the world and why is she hidden from the world and it's not quite clear initially why. And then it becomes this kind of picaresque adventure, almost a kind of fairy tale as this you know child in the body of a woman Goes out into the world to find her place in it. She actually runs away with a a sort of slight, well, very dodgy um, lawyer played by Mark Ruffalo. And and they have this sort of wild, you know, affair. And she's very, very sex positive. She's absolutely down with experimenting with the world, trying all the new things that she can. And of course, scandalizing her kind of quasi Victorian society as she does so. So it's a fascinating mix. It's obviously directed by Yorgos Lenthimos, as you know, it's it's the, the guy who did The Favourite, the guy who did The Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, The Lobster. And, and like those films, it doesn't have maybe the weird cadences of The Lobster or The Killing of a Sacred Deer, but it has just a weird off-kilter sense to the mm. whole thing. So it's like a Wes Anderson film at times, you know, there's these extraordinary kind of miniatures and uh, deliberately artificial settings and sets. Also like incredible production design i would like to move into any of the houses and and flats and ship cabins in this film immediately they are incredible but they are artificial they are heightened they are kind of fairy tale in quality you know so she's kind of going through all of these stages of learning about the world of coming up with ideas of how she thinks things do work how th- how things should work and kind of then testing those against reality it is pretty astonishing. It's also... Do you know what? You know, a lot of people earlier this year were having a discussion online about are sex scenes in movie ever really necessary? Do they add to the plot? There's a sort of censorious movement that says sex can never be mm. plot-centric, can never be really important to a film... It absolutely is in this film. This film alone is a counter to that argument um, because it is an important part of who she is and how she discovers herself and how she learns about the world and people's sort of secret and hidden desires. It's really something. As soon as you said, oh, she's in the body of a child
2: and and I knew that there were loads of that it was a sex positive film but just combining those two things made me go oh god it's Priscilla all over again so I'm <laughs> delighted to hear that it is not and it feels hopefully that it's going to fill that Henry Selick uh Tim Burton gap that there has been certainly in my viewing life for a
1: good few years now I can't wait to see it yeah it is a little bit, both of them. And I think it also it might, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about this for for Oscars, for awards season. You know, we might see this doing a sort of everything everywhere all at once, the weird little film that becomes a kind of award sensation because there's a lot going on. There's a load of ideas in this that you can kind of sink your teeth into. And yeah, it, it is It is lovely.
2: I'm certainly hearing that the buzz around Emma Stone is that this yes. is a big, a- big moment for her. Is it one of those things where the film pales when you sort of take her away from it or does it still stand up?
1: Uh, no, because there's so much beauty and weirdness and horror as well around her. I think everybody kind of keeps up with her. She definitely is the linchpin of the whole thing, but she she brings it all together in a really lovely way. So yeah, I think she's, I think she, if they hadn't given her an Oscar for for La La Land, which they shouldn't have because I don't like it, mm-hmm. um, then she'd be a shoe in for this. Given that she already has an Oscar, I don't know if that will kind of count against her. Sometimes it does, I think. But, um, but it's an extraordinary performance because she basically has to age from sort of, you know, a toddler stage to fully grown adult. Astonishing stuff. Mm.
0: Thank you both. Uh, Just On Poor Things is one of the cover films of the new Picturehouse magazine, Picturehouse Recommends, which, as mentioned earlier, is available for free at all Picturehouse cinemas. Uh, Members can get it posted to them as well if you're a member log in and sure you tick the box to get your copy posted to you the other film we have on the cover of picture house recommends at the moment is all of the strangers which is also the next film we are going to cover on this podcast right now new film from writer and director andrew haig starring andrew scott and paul Mescal and jamie bell and claire foy and, and actually it's a really nice sort of forehander hander uh, in, in that respect, but uh, but this film left a huge impact on me and I am curious to see what Kat and Helen made of all of us strangers. Hello. Hi. Saw so you looking at me from the
4: street. I'm assuming you're not with anyone. never see you with anyone. This is your mom and dad? Yeah. They died just before I was
0: 12. I'm trying to write about them at the moment.
4: How's it going? Strangely,
1: I so, I mean, we've talked about loneliness. We've talked about growing up. We've talked about, you know, the ways in which you kind of need people in your life to help you grow up. I feel like that brings us quite neatly to to all of us strangers, Kat.
2: I mean, I feel like you've just run their PR campaign beautifully for <laughs> them there, Helen. That is that is it. It's all three in one. Um, before we go into this, I just because I went into this film completely blind, all I knew was that two other film journo friends of mine had sobbed whilst they were watching it. So mm. I went in assuming... Make that three. Oh, God. oh, three. I was just like, oh God, this is just going to be harrowing film about life and how difficult life is. This is not going to be my jam at all. All I want to say is, it's not that. And ideally, you will stop listening now. Just go off to the cinema and see this exquisitely beautiful, kind, gentle, and completely devastating film. If you do want to know what happens in it, then please listen on. So All of Us Strangers is based on the 1987 novel, Strangers, by the Japanese author Teichi Amada, And there is this strange, <clears throat> almost lost in translation aspect of people really feeling out of kilter and out of place, an incredible and very, very small cast. Andrew Scott, who plays Adam, this screenwriter who's living in a very beautiful, very empty new apartment building in some unknown place. At the beginning, you think it could be New York, could be LA. It turns out to be somewhere in London. And he's trying to write a screenplay about his parents, who in this are played by Jamie Jamie Bell and Claire Foy. And he's also encountering this other lonely chap, Paul Meskel, uh, playing this sort of almost itinerant, not quite boy-man-child, but just a sort of lost gay man in his late, twen- late 20s, who tries to build up a relationship with Adam, a- Andrew Scott, and um, it doesn't quite hit off. But it just becomes this extraordinary story of Traveling through time and what you could change if you could see other people again, uh, mm. would you like to say exactly why Helen
1: well, I mean basically he he can go and visit his dead parents it's, it's weird he gets on a train, he goes to the house where he lived as a child, and there are his parents essentially as he left them um or as they left him as they were before they were killed in a car crash when he was what twelve wasn't mm. it, and he sort of has a chance to get past some of those issues of loss and, and uh, you know, not rejection, because it wasn't rejection, but feeling rejected maybe as a child, which has all become mixed up with all these other hang-ups he has in his life. He's had hang-ups about his sexualities. He's had hang-ups about connecting to people, forming relationships. And, and you just see him begin to try and break down some of those walls that he's put up around himself and and that you know then feeds back in you know he's going maybe on these day trips and and seeing this couple then also going back and and talking to this young man and uh, harry and and sort of forming some kind of connection there and it's this sort of it's a dreamlike film isn't it you're not quite sure What his reality is, what our reality is, how any of this is possible, but you sort of you're just carried along with it, aren't you? Mm. And even his parents say they're not sure what's happening
2: or how long this strange connection is going to last. But I think something that makes this film more than sad, and I did sob silently Mm -hmm. all the way through. It was like that song from Operation Mincemeat, the musical, all over again. But it's very healing. Like Mm -hmm. the parents get to hear from him that he is gay. He gets to come out to them. And his mum has that immediate 80s and actually took, for a lot of people, the contemporary reaction of, oh, no, no, but you're going to die. You're going to be really unhappy. This is really awful. I don't want this for you. But what is wonderful is that they both listen. His father, in mm-hmm. turn, listens to him about the fact that he was so bullied at school. And the father explains how torn up about he was because if he was at school, he probably would have bullied his son as well. But it's just... Utterly devastatingly gorgeous. And this relationship that he builds up with Harry as well, back in mm. London, this and the way that they sort of talk about their different relationships within their families, two incredibly, incredibly lonely people, and that actually it's not just that they're clinging on to each other because there's nobody else, it's because they're both very slowly finding out how they can be with somebody else. Mm. And and not just be codependent, in fact, it's more interdependent. It's an oddly mm-hmm. healthy relationship, but beautifully done and with an ending that is, I left oh. the cinema and I thought about
1: it and I felt it in my bones yeah. for hours afterwards. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a just a beautiful film. It comes from Andrew Haig, writing and directing, who gave us things like the, the series of Looking and 45 Years. But this, I think, is, is head and shoulders above what he's done oh, before. And that's not to denigrate what he's done before. No,
2: and very wow. very in keeping with Weekend, which is another mm. completely beautiful film. But this is just, I mean, this isn't another league altogether, but yeah. not in a sort of put it on a shelf and look at it once and never look at it again way. I mean, this is something that makes you feel more part of the world and like a better human. Amen.
0: Well, there we go. Those were our four film reviews of the month. There are more than four films opening at your local Picturehouse Cinema in January, but we, for the purpose of the podcast and to keep the runtime uh, to a reasonable length, we we pick four that we're particularly excited about. Uh, But just on that last film, All of the Strangers, we do have a special episode with writer-director Andrew Haig, which will drop a little bit closer to the film's release later in January. So subscribe, please, please subscribe uh, to the pod feed and look out for that one uh, a little bit later on. But right now, let's do a, a bonus fifth film Let's talk about One Life, the new film starring Anthony Hopkins, with its director James Hawes. And this interview was done by previous pod uh, host. You may have heard if you listened to the podcast a couple of months ago, Sean Wilson. Thank you so much, Sean, for doing this interview, and thank you, James, for taking time out uh, to talk about his brand new film, One Life, which is in Picturehouse Cinemas right now.
3: Thank you. Cheers, yeah, right? Thank you. Thanks. Hi, James. Hi, Sean. Hi, lovely to meet you. And you. Um, yeah, good stuff. So um, in, the, um, in the course of um, researching like questions to, to, to talk with you about one life, <coughs> yeah. um, I, I was looking at your, at your background. I noticed you went to school in, in Cornwall. Is, is, is that right? It is. Yeah, as a, as a fellow Southwesterner, I just oh. want to say awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm
4: proud of it. People say, are you a Northerner or a Southerner? And I said, neither. I'm a Westerner. There you go. <laughs> yeah. 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 Was, were there any
3: um any like formative like film experiences from that time in your life that kind of influenced like filmmaking anyway?
4: Uh, there was one particular teacher and it was um he was mad about westerns. He was my head of drama and, and English and a phenomenal and rather daunting gentleman called Watson Weeks. And um uh so as well as English and drama his his big thing was westerns and when he got bored teaching us uh, catch up, as I often had to do, he would show a western instead as a way of talking about character and story. Um, so that early on, and The Searchers will always be Watson Weeks for me. Yeah, yeah, and an absolute masterpiece, yes. evidently. Yeah. Well,
3: so in in discussing your new film One Life, which which dramatizes the story of Nicholas Winson, which from my point of view what I knew about Nicholas Winton was that image of him on That's Life, on on the Esther Anson um, show. And I think so often, isn't it, with with famous moments from history, there are often images that, that define it, like that's what defined it for me. Was there a desire for you to kind of get behind that image and bring that story to a
4: wider audience? Oh, totally. I mean, one of the things that I've been repeating, which I haven't about for many, many years is that my second ever job in the industry was as a trainee researcher at the BBC on That's Life. So part of my history dates way back there. But then seeing that clip, now that clip is so familiar to people. It is however shot as a piece of television because that's what it was meant to be. It's the pedestal cameras, it's largely from Esther's point of view, if you see what I mean. She, as if she was sat in her living room. So We knew we had to to get and achieve the same emotion, which is no small feat. But I wanted it very much to be from Nicky's experience because there was no point replicating it as if it had just been shot for the flat screen. So you travel into the studio on Nicky's shoulder, you sit down with him, you get his sense of panic that he's being stuck in the front row because he spent his life not wanting to be in the front row of anything. And then when he is finally introduced to one of the surviving kinder, it's an intimate moment shot over their shoulders rather than anything seen by the 20 million UK TV audience. I
3: suppose is that a sign of how filmmaking, as opposed to live TV production, is it quite a liberating experience in terms of being able to dramatise things visually?
4: Oh yeah, hugely. I mean, it all comes down to where you put the camera. And obviously documentary can. I wouldn't want to say that they can't find, a documentary maker can't find a way of... Of doing that but you get to choose your point of view more explicitly when you're dramatizing it and creating the whole scene in front of you.
3: Yeah I think um, I I went to Prague early this year and I was forced to reckon with a lot of my own ignorance about the um, the appeasement on the part of the allies that then allowed um, Hitler to march into Czechoslovakia and I I was really forced to reckon with my own lack of knowledge on on that, and that was quite a profound experience for me. And it, obviously, evidently, you're now bringing this story to it to a, a big audience. Like, um, so it, it, the movie is a very, very profound statement about how heroism isn't about numbers. It's not about. It's not about. It's not measured in an empirical sense. Like, was that how important was that to
4: bring that across? well you've you've touched on a few things i mean the 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 Czechoslovak story and the appeasement story i think are are really crucial. And obviously, the echoes from the past talking to us about the Ukraine situation, for, for example, now. And I've been really struck by, well, recently two things, in, even before the film's been released. One, screening it to 1500 Italian students at the Rome Film Festival, and how many came up afterwards to say, we just don't know about this history. Because of our role in the war, we're not taught about this part of history, and how moved they were by it. And then I was approached by a teacher from a school in Maidenhead, where Nicky Winton obviously lived, doing a project with their year sixes, so 10, 11-year-olds, um, and how they were involved in the idea of understanding what the appeasement meant and uh, what had happened in, in those early years. So that, that was tremendously important. And for the Czechs, obviously, being there telling a story about their own history, they were incredibly involved and passionate about what we were doing. Um, keen that we should be telling a story they were proud of and, and not just one of them as put upon uh, Nazi collaborators as some of them were.
3: And I suppose being in Prague, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm right in saying you actually shot in Prague, didn't you actually shot on location there?
4: Yes, we spent uh, 17 days of our shoot there. And
3: did that imbue? Did that help imbue the movie with more um, more authority and more sense of purpose by
4: being there? Without a doubt. I mean, obviously, the moment you step and put a camera down on the real stones, um, it, it does give it an authority. It, it, for the filmmakers and the cast, particularly, it makes it feel that much more real and immediate. There are some ironies in it all. We, because of budget and production constraints, we needed to film the home office scenes there. Mm. Um, And the building that we could find that was most like Whitehall was actually occupied by the Gestapo during the the Second World War as their uh, as their headquarters. Uh, But we do get to show scale. I mean, we obviously we we shot up near the palace. We shot on one of the bridges across across the river. So you really do feel the place you're in, that place of, of history.
3: Absolutely, I really got that. The shot of the looking cross at the Charles Bridge, I yes. think that, that yeah, yes. as, as, as 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 young Nicholas is being driven through Prague for the first time, really stood out to me. And it's a really interesting for me. The film is a really interesting study in how ostensible heroism is really a two-edged um, sword because by liberating these children, he is also being compelled to separate the children from their families, albeit you know, this is meant to be a, a temporary situation. And I imagine was that kind of one of the central tenets of the of the story that you wanted to bring across as well.
4: Yes, it was a big thing. I mean, he went out there and he makes it that the statement is very clear in his his telling of his own life story and in the film that he had to be pragmatic. And he has a conversation with a rabbi in the film about, look, I can't promise that they're going to be in Jewish families and, and going to synagogue at the moment, but I can tell you they're going to be alive. And I, right now my priority is to save these kids' lives and we'll sort out the rest afterwards. In the same way, when he, he's at home finding them foster families, he's, he's rather apologetic in later years for sending out images of them on what he could only describe as soap cards, as if they were selling soap powder. But it was the only way he had, bearing in mind all this is happening in a time where we have the postal service and um, a fairly new telephone service nationwide, so he does not have the immediate communication that we would have to make those decisions and vet those people and make sure those kids are going to safe places. He he was about saving, utter pragmatism, save them from the big threat, then we'll sort the rest out. I think that that, that pragmatism comes through,
3: um, obviously through Anthony Hopkins' performance, the idea that he is, he is carrying this history with him as the older Nicholas Winston, but he doesn't want to transmit it very openly and yet you intercut between past and present between older Nicholas and younger Nicholas played by Johnny Flynn and I love the intercutting between past and present in this but I imagine that must be a real challenge trying to find those juncture points where you can slip between two
4: time frames, right? And that all came up in the shooting and in the edit and mostly in the editorial process which which really was fascinating for me. I mean, every time a director sits down and sees the first assembly of their film you're absolutely convinced that your career is over. And it was the same with this film. And, and, I, I, and I understand you laughing. Thank you for that. I, honestly, really, genuinely, that's what you feel every time. Mm. And a director friend said to me, if you are not standing on the top of a fire escape, looking into a Soho street, throwing up into the street below and threatening to jump off, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. mm-hmm. I looked at the film at this point with my editor and uh, she immediately Um, Lucio Zucchetti said there are some things we can do to have both to speed up the pace in the first half and to have one part of the story inform the other more clearly and that's what we found and it did two special things one was it turned the briefcase scrapbook theme which is what's he hiding in the drawer what's in the case why is it haunting him the rosebud motif as I like to call it and what happened to the last train is withheld and withheld all the way through until that scene when he's sitting with Betty Maxwell and he reveals what happened to the ninth train. Those things were all found during the edit. It's, um,
3: it's, it's funny, yeah, because I've, I've heard several interviews with the filmmakers saying that that's when they locate that's when they locate the the kind of core of the of the project which goes to show the power of the edit doesn't it ultimately
4: yes and and actually you you're talking to me at a point where i'm exactly halfway through shooting my next film and because of the actor's strike there's been this forced pause and i was able to get into the cutting room for only a precious two weeks but In those two weeks, I've been able to live with the film in a different way. You look at it from a totally different perspective to see what its strengths are, what its weaknesses, what elements you want to dial up or down in a different fashion. Make sure you've anchored the the pitch of the performance. It's invaluable. Frankly, all shoots should suspend for at least a week to let you into the cutting room and and breathe it.
3: And I imagine that's... That's an advantage that's obviously come up because of exceptional circumstances in the last year. That's not something I imagine you would have access to ordinarily.
4: No, I know one or two British indie directors, television directors as well, who are able to do that. But they really are those very few who are at the top of the tree and can say, give me a pot of money and I'm going to make this thing. Otherwise, of course, just the budget restraints over um, constraints over production mean that that's impossible. Well, in relation to this particular
3: film, evidently we have to talk about Anthony Hopkins, who is, I always think with Anthony Hopkins as an actor, he can make stillness very, very interesting, and whether he's playing it for villainous purposes or whether he's playing it for noble purposes, he can obviously do both ends of the spectrum, but he's always quite quiet, he's quite, he can make quietness very interesting. And was it a sense of harnessing that, like how did you work with him to,
4: to make that work? Well, always the conversation is, what is the thought that's going through this scene? what Why is he standing at a window, what it, what is what has got him out of bed, why is he haunted? so that that would always be my process anyway, and anthony tony is is always there. And you think of things like Remains of the Day, where we obviously think it's an iconic performance of gazing out of windows with a, a, a not dissimilar pitch of pain and torture to himself and not being able to express it or speak about it. So there's a scene, again, the scene with Betty Maxwell, where he can't face the truth that she is telling him, and he has to walk away to the window and look out over the English countryside. And Tony talked very eloquently about the stillness of England and and the gentleness of that sort of landscape and what it made him feel in the character, something to anchor onto, something to wrap around yourself for comfort from the horrors that you'd lived through. It was... Um and I mean
3: this is the highest compliment. It did remind me a lot of his performance, not just Remains of the Day, like you just said, but also Shadowlands as yes. well. I thought there were yeah. overtones of, of, yeah. of that. I don't know if there were if that was necessarily going through your mind when you were directing him or
4: Well, Remains of the Day particularly, but also um a BBC play that uh, well it was I think it was a Screen Two when the BBC used to make these movies for TV effectively, that were somewhere between a play and an indie movie. And there was one called um, coming coming Home, I think, and it was about a Welsh farmer whose um, living was being ruined by new rules from Brussels. And there was a scene of him calling the cows home by name and he eventually ends up killing the Brussels bureaucrat who's ruined his life and the final scene is him in his prison cell calling the cows home by name and I just remembered that quietness and that evocation. I talked to him about it uh, in some detail, and how he'd reached that tone. Um, so that that left-of-field influence came in for those scenes.
3: And In terms of actually putting the history on screen, particularly in the scenes where we are back in Czechoslovakia at the onset of World War II, there's obviously there's an extraordinary plethora of detail that you as a as a dramatist and as a filmmaker have to communicate to the audience through the the, the props what 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 we're observing like there's the scene where nicholas approaches the um hitler's plan for europe that's tacked to the to the wall and 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 then rome character says well that's that's what he wants and is that all you know just i'm always stunned at the amount of research that must go into just making all of this feel tactile and feel tangible like how much of a challenge is, is that to bring across?
4: I mean, it, it's a lot of work But it is also something that the various creative teams feel passionate about and and I am a huge believer that in All the detail you bring in and and some might argue Well, we don't need that people are never going to notice that The What's on the menu in the hotel is never going to be seen but it's amazing how especially on the big screen that forms part of the world And the more you can build that world to a confident 360 place, the more the audience is just sucked into it, and they don't question it, and they go with the story. So right down to the documents that they make, obviously recreating the scrapbook, that was all done with huge detail. We have historical advisors at various levels, including the Holocaust Education Trust to tell us particularly about the kids on the trains, but um, Czech advisors to take us through the history of the occupation in Prague. So down to the nth degree we went through what it would look like what it would feel like yeah because the scrapbook is something we see in very
3: very close-up detail of like you said it's a running motif all the way throughout so that's that's the kind of research that it's right there in in yes. the eye of the audience and people can really see it
4: yeah and that's the graphics team working with that because the original is now in Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem uh Tel Aviv I'm sorry and let's just say it's in Israel uh I'm showing my ignorance but Right down to the types of paper that were being used, the graphics department were trying to recreate that, get the print styles right uh, as far as they could. So it it looked and felt real. And
3: one of the things I absolutely believed was I believed that um, Anthony Hopkins and Johnny Flynn were the same character because i've seen so many movies that are bifurcated across different time frames where i think okay i'm, I'm not quite sure that the, that the two actors are playing both hearts of the same soul but i definitely believe that here and i think that's i mean casting directors are often so underestimated aren't they in terms of how they can get that right and i think that was absolutely right here personally
4: yeah and look that's credit to nina gold who is one of the best ever I'd worked with Johnny before. There's something about the stature of the two men that complements each other, the breadth of face, um, obviously the blue eyes, that's something we could have dealt with with lenses or whatever, but uh, didn't have to. And then it's about the artistry that two performers bring to the role and the way Johnny picked up details from Tony's performance to, to, to color his own. And, and so the, the intercuts, I think, are almost seamless. And did they, did they did they interact with each other? Was it was it a
3: question were they observing each other, or were they were they kept apart to kind of form their own their
4: own? It, the way production happened, and of so often these things are driven by production practicalities. We were shooting Tony's fifteen days first, so Johnny came to set to meet Tony and then to spend two or three days on set watching him, just watching studying what he was doing there were conversations that I was lucky enough to be part of where they were talking about gestures with the glasses and blinks of the eye and rhythms in the speech but it doesn't need much you know for that and and very often less is much much more otherwise it becomes a mechanical, slightly affected process that I think gets in the way of the performance. And in the end, it's also down to the writers because they've created a very honest, singular human. And if the things that drive him in 39 are honest, they're almost certainly driving him similarly in the 80s. So I think that those character traits that are written in there in the script are part of the unity.
3: Yeah, because I suppose it has to feel organic On the part of the actors, because, like you said, if it's if it's too mechanical, it will be noticed. Right, people will notice it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that the presence of Helena Bonham Carter as Nicholas's mother, Babette, was was interesting because she, in the movie, she very powerfully speaks of the migrant experience and how that how that has shaped her. And I suppose, evidently, the movie is holding up a mirror to present day concerns isn't it? And for that reason, it's a very, very important watch. Wouldn't you agree?
4: I, I totally agree. And I, and I also want to, one of the things I've been talking about is people's perceptions of refugees. Now, I think people coming out of this movie, couldn't think of anything much more British than Nicholas Winton and his principles. anything more British than Helena Bonham Carter in one of her performances. Both of them are the children of immigrants, the children of refugees to this country. Nicholas Winton, obviously one of the reasons he did it was because his background and therefore his his understanding of what was going on in Europe was so much more attuned to the coming threat than perhaps other British citizens would have been. Helena talks very passionately about the fact that some of this story is her family's story. Um, she being part Jewish, very European, growing up in North London in the same, exactly the same area as, as Nicholas Winton was. So we've got to be really careful when we decide what a refugee is, and we need to open our brains a bit to that and that is powerfully painfully relevant today absolutely yeah, and I think it's it's a testament to
3: the to the film that it does hold hold a mirror uh, absolutely make us reflect on on those on those concerns and for me, it was a very the film was a very powerful yet sobering reminder about how history does move in cycles. And things do move cyclically, often to the detriment of, of mankind. Again, that, that was my interpretation of it. I'm not sure if that was something that was aimed to come out of the movie, but
4: that's the way I saw it. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And uh, oh, I think one of the tough things is Nikki said, that when asked about um, what does it tell us about what we learn from history, he says, history tells us that we learn nothing from history, yeah. um, which is pretty brutal. But right now it feels all too honest.
3: Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, yeah, it's Bruce Brutal, but it's true, I think. Yeah. I was really, really moved by the production, by by the scale of the production, and by the way that um it, it has an urgency. There's an urgency to the depiction of the of the history um in in the film and the way it makes history feel alive, I thought was was really was there is there anything from your experiences prior to making this movie to kind of in, to invest that kind of urgency and that vitality into real- life events
4: well yeah I mean there is I've, I've spent time in in countries just before or immediately after war and felt what a strange distorted world it is um, very very quickly all the paradigms shift people are cleared out moral moral lines shift um, there's there's a an understanding that today could be your last and so people behave hugely differently and often quite selfishly which makes the heroism in the middle of all of that stand out even more powerfully but also again and honestly I think in this film I've only got part of the way to where I want to be to show history as alive and vibrant and not as some sort of story preserved in aspic, it feels very important to me. So the handheld camera was an important part of that. Trying to get those visceral emotions on the station platform was part of that. Not, I mean, production constraints again meant I couldn't show the whole of the Third Reich arriving uh, in Prague and Wenceslas Square. So we made a virtue of the fact that we only glimpsed it from one person's point of view out of the window of a hotel with some soldiers coming into the bar. But actually that was quite interesting because it meant that you were still with your characters in their experience and their fear, not suddenly in some 1930s Hollywood great sweeping epic. Yeah, and that is
3: a testament to the film um, that you've made. Um, so that, thank you, James, for making it and for really bringing, you know, obviously what is an incredibly important piece of, of history um, to the audience. And I, I, really, I really, really hope that people take Really important lessons, and away from this. So, um, so thank you, and, and all the best for the film. Thank you very much. Lovely talking to you.
0: Ah, oh, well, thank you, James Hawes. There, uh, as mentioned, his new film One Life is in cinemas right now. Deeply, deeply emotional uh, film, I must say. Even if you've seen the trailer, it, it sort of makes me well up. Uh, so, such a beautiful story. Thank you, Sean, for doing that interview. Now, let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming, Uh, back to Helen and Kat, because whilst we have our guest critics in the pod booth, we also like to ask them what's still in cinemas that they'd like to recommend, and what's coming up uh, that they're looking forward to, Uh, and we also like to hear what else they're working on. Uh, So let's check that out right now. Back over to Helen and Kat for one last time.
1: So Kat, what else are you going to be seeing in the cinema this week? Well,
2: as it's January, all I want in my eyes is comfort. So I will probably be going to see Wonka on repeat, armed with a box of cat salad, which our friend Sam named, and is essentially just sweet and salted popcorn with a bag of Revels in it. All I want is joy and bright colours and Hugh Grant as an Oompa Loompa. And that's that's absolutely (laughs) going to make my January, if not go with a swing, then be less of the sort of like grey, miserable,
1: ghastly waste of 31 days that it usually is. What about you? Well, that's my kind of January salad, my God. I am probably also going to be seeing Wonka again, but I'm also going to be going back to see The Boy and the Heron again, yes. which is the new Miyazaki movie, Studio Ghibli. I, I can't sum it up to you. I really can't tell you the story, uh, except that it is. it does feature both a boy and a heron, and the heron may be a sort of sentinel who can help the boy travel between worlds. But it's also about, again, grief and loss and uh, finding a way to grow up, and finding a way to get past what you have lost, and find something comfort- comforting in the present. It also has some of the most extraordinary images I have ever, oh. ever seen, and of course some weird little guys like there are in every Miyazaki movie, and that is as it should be.
2: I mean, this is the year of, of Miyazaki again. I've got tickets to go and see My Neighbor Totoro at the Barbican again, and I'm, I Me think too. we're both going to see Spirited Away in the yes. summer. But I think we're oh. going together. I booked those tickets ages ago, so that's fabulous. But yeah, bring bring that on, basically. Oh, couldn't be better. And what are you looking forward to for the rest of this year? I have been stanning your fat friend, which is Jeannie Finley's an incredible documentary about the writer blogger activist and maintenance phase uh, podcast co-host Aubrey Gordon um it went to Sheffield DocFest last year to an extraordinary response and I think it was up at Edinburgh as well at neither place that I managed to get to because I was stuck at a computer hating my life but I just I'm I'm absolutely desperate to see it it's I saw a a really fabulous uh, documentary a few years ago on Photoshop and body positivity, but this really takes it like several steps more. It's, it's, it's years really in, in the lives, in the life of Gordon and just seeing how the world's, not just attitudes have changed, but as we're going into an era when a Zempic is, is really being pushed. And people who do live in larger bodies are always deemed to be lesser than, even if even if they're, you know, ticking off all the health boxes and stuff. It's just like nobody is allowed to just be anymore. Mm. And I think we need a film about just being in your body and radical acceptance. I can't wait for that. It'll be at Picture House Central, I think, in January as well. Amazing.
1: Amazing. I mean, I don't want to be a cliché nor sound frivolous after that impassioned plea, but I'm just really excited for Dune Part 2. I (laughs) mean, you know me, I can't lie. I'm really excited for it. I think that the first one was an absolutely stunning adaptation of that book. It is one of the all-time great sci-fi adaptations. If they can stick the landing in this book, and I know they're now talking about a third film potentially, but if they can stick the landing to Dune itself in this book, that will be absolute chef's kiss time. You know, just crown Denis Villeneuve, throw money at him, happy days. I mean, it's an incredible cast as well. Even with the fact that, you know, spoiler for Dune, Oscar Isaac won't be returning this time. You know, you still have Javier Bardem and and Rebecca Ferguson and, of course, Timothee Chalamet and Zendaya right front and centre this time. I could not be more excited. Sandworms forever, that's what I say. And
2: so much good hair. I mean, what a dream. So much.
1: Oh, it's going to be dreamy. So Kat, this is going to be an extremely exciting year for you because you have not one but two books coming out, you outrageous overachiever. Well, I can't really be your friend if I haven't written any books because
2: I think you've (laughs) written about five now and it's frankly devastating. But no, I do. I have Is It a Bloody Trend? Understanding Life as an ADHD Adult coming out at the beginning of February, which I'm thrilled about. I've interviewed the most incredible people for that and me. But never mind. And then after that, I have uh, no one talks about this stuff. Twenty-two stories of almost parenthood, which is a wonderful anthology that I put together as a support group for people who, like me, have gone through failed IVF and can't have kids, or for anybody who is touched by baby loss, also being child-free. Just anything where you, even if perhaps you are a parent, but have, but there is always going to be that hole in your life. With a name on it. Uh, So that's coming out towards the end of March on the 21st. And then I will be able to stand proud next to you, Helen, as as your friend, because I now have, I think, three different versions of Women Versus Hollywood, which I'm (laughs) utterly thrilled by. And what about you?
1: Well, Kat, as you know, most of my efforts are podcasting at the moment. Obviously, I'm still doing writing and so on, and I may have a new book that I'm working on this year. But as well as doing the Empire podcast and the Empire spoiler podcasts on a weekly basis, um, you and I are launching a new podcast at uh, <sighs> Pop Culture. I don't know if you're aware of this cat, but we are. Um, Pop Culture is a, a podcast all about soft drinks because basically we have spent the last few years swapping photos on WhatsApp of our of bad or good soft drinks menus in restaurant and complaining to each other or you know praising places that we go about soft drinks. So we're basically going to be talking about all things soft drinky, whether that's, you know, alcohol free or never had alcohol near it to begin with, drinks about the people who make them, about the people who serve them, about the people who decide what soft drinks we get. And just, you know, general chat, I think is the plan.
2: Completely. We've got some amazing guests coming up. Uh, You can find us on all good podcasting platforms if you search for pop uh, pop culture the soft drinks podcast but also uh being as it is january even if you do drink booze just come along mm. and have a listen for some really good suggestions of delicious things to drink when you don't want to have your fourth bottle of wine of the evening um but i yeah i'm really looking forward to getting that started we've got lots of fabulous episodes coming up and uh yeah i think it's going to be a really good year for soft
1: drinks <laughs> i think so too
0: well, there we go. And as mentioned earlier on, I am so excited for pop culture, Helen and Cat's new podcast. Uh, there's a link to that in the show notes and a link to uh, Helen and Cat's other work, some of Cat's writing, uh, Helen's other podcast work. And of course, you can read Helen regularly at Empire Magazine and also in Picture House Recommends, uh, the free Picture House magazine. Well there we go. First podcast of twenty twenty-four down. That is January. There is so much stuff out in cinemas. I must say also, as well as these new releases, there's a load of stuff that came out in December, which is still playing, such as The Boy and the Heron, Ferrari, Next Girl Wins, Wonka. Don't forget about Wonka. <laughs> So, there's all that and much, much more. Uh, but for all cinema listings, do visit picturehouses.com and find your local cinema, and you can see what's on there. You can contact Picturehouse Cinemas at PictureHouses on all major social media platforms uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok etc and uh, and we'll be back i say we got a bonus podcast with andrew hay coming later this month but then we'll be back in february with two new guest critics thank you so much for listening and thank you also to kobe at stripped media for producing this episode and laura enlit audio for her wonderful editing work thank you so much laura and we will see you in a few weeks please subscribe do leave us a rating or a little review we love to see them on itunes apple podcast spotify or wherever you listen to To your pods. Thank you very much. See you soon. Goodbye.